it can be really difficult to get out of these cycles because like at the end of the day we're little hairless apes on a space rock right what you are doing is very is a very intuitive way to survive your body's saying my needs are not being met feed me now andy krushmer is a licensed social worker in ohio who has personally experienced the challenges of eating disorders and emerged with a fierce determination to advocate for others facing similar struggles. Their research and dedication to unraveling the complex factors that contribute to subclinical eating disorders illuminates this need for a more inclusive approach to supporting people who have struggled with food insecurity and disordered eating. We're going to delve into that connection that anti-fatness and food insecurity have in the development of eating disorders, including binge eating disorder. Let's get into it. Quiet, not silent. So I'm here with Andy, and Andy, could you tell me a little bit about your like professional background, first of all? So my name is Andy Kretschmer. I am a licensed social worker in the state of Ohio, and I am a social work grad student. And as part of my kind of like professional background, um, beyond being a community mental health therapist, I also do research with my university, the Ohio State University on how anti-fatness influences disordered eating among food insecure people. So I released a study last year and am currently working on another study. And we're primarily looking at binge eating disorder among food insecure people. Yeah, it's it's not talked about as much as I wish it was. <laughs> so that's why I wanted to bring you on. I just wanted to pick your brain about it. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of things that can be explored here, especially how it ties into BPD because people with BPD are really vulnerable to developing eating mm -hmm. disorders and disordered eating and yeah. I've struggled with with it myself. So is in your study when you say disordered eating are, does that mean that you're kind of not particularly focused on a specific eating disorder? Yeah. One of the problems with how we kind of conceptualize disordered eating in at least the the Western world. Um, I'm American and live in the US. So how we kind of diagnose and classify things has been steeped largely in like psychology and viewing kind of like disordered eating as this top down kind of almost moral defect that affects like primarily thin white women who have a emphasis on like high achievement, you know, the, the stereotype of the eating disorder. What's really frustrating about that is then when we look toward populations like my research population, right? The primary reason that many of them like seem to engage in disordered eating is their food insecurity. It is not this way of coping necessarily with like an adverse psychological state. And it might not even be necessarily 
about their body image or their weight, right? So classifying somebody as having bulimia or anorexia, even though that's what their scores on the diagnostic scales that we use might indicate, the reasons for which they're engaging in things like dietary restriction might be because they don't have enough food to eat, or they might be saving food for their children or other family members who they think need the food more, like older adults or something. So when I say disordered eating, I am really just trying to say our current diagnostic and treatment milieu does not necessarily fit this population given what we know about this population and we need to know more to find out how to actually categorize and treat these in like a culturally competent and accessible way if that makes sense <laughs> it does make sense yeah how common are eating disorders because when we're talking about disordered eating it makes me think that that okay this is sounds a bit more common mm -hmm. if we're if we're talking about other factors than just a disorder that's diagnosed based off of issues with body image yeah, I would say disordered eating is pretty much the norm, especially in America. Um, mm. Our how we are socialized around food um, is pretty messed up, <laughs> and yeah. uh, it it is something that is so incredibly normalized. And we also still don't have any kind of like formal, like governmental kind of tracking of disordered eating, which sounds ridiculous, right? But we didn't even really start formally addressing eating disorders until like the mid 20th century <laughs> um like we've always known about them but as far as like inclusion of the dsm and actual treatment protocols just kind of a mystery it's interesting because there are like nonprofits, um like national eating disorder awareness and mental health america that do track or try to keep tabs on rates of eating disorders in the general population in the United States. Um, and they estimate that like nine, 10% of the population has an eating disorder, which that's a lot of people <laughs> that that is a su substantial number of people. So when we're looking about like 30 million people, and that's just clinically significant eating disorders, and then we think about rampant diet culture, um, you know, just such a heavy emphasis on weight from a very young age um, at like medical appointments and stuff um, how parents socialize their children to eat and all of these other things um, it's likely that that is like not the full scope of disordered eating um, subclinical eating disorders are likely a lot more common but we just don't know wow Obviously, like, I don't know statistics and stuff, but I do understand that BPD does have, like, incredible mm -hmm. comorbidities with eating disorders. Whether or not you have emotional under or over control, like, um, you know, it's, it's so common for people with BPD, and I've seen it, like, time and time again in the BPD community, and people have gotten to know they struggle with eating disorders um and i'm wondering like do you know if there's any have you done any like reading about that or anything like is there okay all right you see you're of doing course that. i have okay 
Perfect, because, <laughs> yeah, like, I would be interested in reading more about this somewhere, or, like, could you maybe shed some light on whatever you're doing the little hand thing about? Yes. Wahaha, mind palace. Let's go. <laughs> welcome to, welcome to my yes, let's comorbid mind palace. Comorbid mind palace. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, so here's the thing. Like, there are, like, if we go to the kind of, like, basic, one of the primary and most persistent symptoms of BPD is emotion dysregulation, right? And a lot of disordered eating is a very effective emotion regulation tool. Also, we do know that people with BPD have lower kind of overall insight and awareness, right? And that includes interoceptive awareness. Interoception or interoceptive awareness is the awareness we have of our own internal bodily processes, right? So when we need to use the bathroom, when we need to eat, when we need to sleep, right? And having low interoceptive awareness also contributes to emotion dysregulation. And this is also why we see things like meltdowns um, in some kind of like situations with autistic people, right? Like there's some kind of dysregulation that's happening and this happens. This happens in a lot of different disorders, right? But, you know, it happens for a variety of reasons with people with BPD, right? And if I think about some of the things that people with BPD or just complex trauma kind of experience, like early emotional or physical neglect, um, abuse, those are things that can kind of dull our interoceptive awareness, right? So when we don't know how to eat, say we don't know when we're hungry, we don't feel it, or maybe we haven't been taught how to know when we're hungry and full, like even going back to like, okay, like did, did you get fed as a small child, right? Like thinking about my experience, I'm like a uh, hit or miss, right? Very hit or miss, um, way, way too young feeding, feeding myself. Um, not doing a great job, not understanding what I needed to feel full or like even when I was hungry, how to recognize when I was getting hungry. And to this day, you know, I'll just find myself like crying and being like, well, it's time to end it all, lads. And then I'm like, I need a snack. Oh, I just needed a snack. Yeah. Um, I just needed some crackers and cheese, you know, like that was really simple, <laughs> honestly. But, you know, not having awareness of our most basic needs, right? Or our having been shown how to navigate those or then that additional like emotional component um because obviously knowing how to meet your your needs and not have low blood sugar will help with emotion regulation but this like cycle that can kind of like happen and then lead to disordered eating behaviors or in some instances like lead to like substance use and then disordered eating and there's so many like ways that we can cope with that kind of like internal chaos and disordered eating is just an effective one helps us feel like we're doing something right and i think you know when i think about my own experience when i was anorexic it was a way for me to not feel anything like i didn't have to think about relational pain i didn't have to feel it i didn't have to do anything except focus on not eating and that's just one experience, right? And there's so many other experiences that can kind of like happen from that. But I think when we talk about 
disorder eating and BPD, it can also like venture into the self-harming behavior territory. And it, you know, in my experience became a pretty ritualized form of self-harm. That was like one thing that like also that stereotypical like approach to eating disorder treatment really didn't help with because I was like, I'm not necessarily doing this to be skinny. Like that's a perk that gets me some relational capital that gets me some social capital. But at the end of the day, it's like the low self-concept, you know, needing an escape, the wanting to regulate, finding it effective to regulate with disordered eating and self-harm. Like it can get so complex when we're talking about borderline specifically. Yeah, like I'm noticing that this is reminding me of these thoughts that I have. It doesn't always revolve around this like I'm doing this to lose weight and be skinny. Mm -hmm. It's I'm doing this to punish myself. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this because I don't deserve this food or like I don't Mm -hmm. deserve to enjoy this. I don't deserve to take care of my body. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm doing this to punish myself, you know, and, and I know that that's not a just Avery thing. I know that a mm-hmm. lot of people yeah. have that struggle where it's like, okay, this is how I'm, this is how my brain has resorted to regulating itself is by telling mm-hmm. itself that I don't deserve this and that I deserve to be punished by engaging in this disordered eating as a form mm-hmm. of self-harm. Yeah, it gets so complex with borderline. And the thing is, like, they're so frequently comorbid, right? Borderline is so comorbid with so many things. Like, but when we think of it, we think like eating disorders and substance use pretty high up there. And then eating disorders and substance use are also super comorbid. So it just gets really, really tricky. I think a lot of people with these these complex trauma disorders, of which like borderline is one, engage in disordered eating for very different reasons at points and i think when treatment is very narrowly focused on this kind of like diet culture gone awry approach it can be really devastating for people who have disordered eating for other reasons so you did mention binge eating disorder, I think, in your study, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a bit more about binge eating disorder because it's not as talked about, but especially in the last couple of years in my own recovery journey, um, binge eating disorder has come up time and time again. And I'm I'm noticing that people are becoming more aware of it. It's It's mm-hmm. not as talked about. But I've heard that it is actually really, really common, even though it's Mm -hmm. not that talked about. When we look at what we do know about eating disorders and rates of different eating disorders, we see that other specified feeding and eating disorder is the most common. Um, It's kind of like the like, oh, you're not fitting in any of these other criteria um, discreetly. So it it is still a clinically significant eating disorder, right? Um, But it is the most common, which makes sense. Um, And then second, we have binge eating disorder. So of that kind of like 30 million people in the United States that I talked about who have an eating disorder, it's estimated about 20 million of them would have binge eating disorder. Yeah. So the eating disorders that we're actually the most familiar with, like bulimia and anorexia, are actually some of the least common. And then we have to get into discussions about atypical presentations of anorexia as well, which are the actual typical presentation statistically. 
that just goes to show like you know we can talk like media can kind of talk about eating disorders mm -hmm. but it's it's not all of the info and it doesn't no, not at all you know, eating disorders <laughs> don't just yeah like in eating disorders don't just look like you can't just look at somebody and tell it whether or not they have an eating mm -hmm. disorder you have no idea yeah so, no idea you know like you just are not gonna know um so with binge eating disorder do you have like personal experience with binge eating disorder um i do I think it's important to talk about these things and, you know, trying to not anchor it to my personal experience is kind of silly because I've experienced food insecurity and I've also experienced like three different eating disorders in my life, um, which has led wow. to me having a more nuanced kind of perspective on this. Um, yeah. And I got a lot of good information at a young age to kind of be like, huh, I wouldn't have done this research if I didn't have my experience. Um, I'll just leave it at that. But True. You know, like I definitely struggled with binge eating at a young age. And it's interesting because some of those things would be considered what we would call a subjective binge, where I may not have been eating as much as I thought, but in my perception, I was eating too much. Um, but there were also periods, and these were periods in time, like looking back, like it was just me going through puberty. But like all of the socio kind of cultural messaging that I received really led me down like a bad psychological path with how I was considering my eating behavior. Beyond that kind of like my own physiological issues, not issues, puberty is not an issue. It just is, right? <laughs> like you need to eat more when you're growing a foot in a year. Um, but there were things in my family environment that made it really difficult for me, especially as a neurodivergent child, to regulate my eating behavior or even like feed myself, right? Like we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So the foods that we had in the house weren't very nutrient dense and it would take more of them to fill me up. Additionally, my like parents were very busy and had their own mental health issues. Um, my mom struggled with substance use um, for my entire childhood. So I wasn't getting the same like family meals that like other people had. I was kind of like feeding myself at a very young age and not knowing when I needed to eat, like when I needed to stop eating, um, no, no kind of guidance, right? And so mm -hmm. I would go for long periods of time, like not eating. And then I would do things like eat a stick of butter. <laughs> or like half a loaf of bread uh, as like a small child, like I would just like steal snacks and like eat them in a room like by myself and then like shove the wrappers under the couch. <laughs> so just like very early on disordered eating um, due to a variety of factors in my life. And then what's interesting and another reason I don't fully like agree with how we diagnose eating disorders and I think what we're seeing now as people are talking more and more about their experiences with binge eating is that something I learned very early on when I was in eating disorder treatment for anorexia because we we overcorrected for the binge eating mm, um mm -hmm. in a in a big way and I went to treatment for anorexia twice as a teenager um wow. like very very typical kind of presentation of anorexia and when 
I recovered from that, I still had a lot of unaddressed behaviors and I aged out of my adolescent therapist, right? Who also diagnosed me with BPD and was like, you gotta kind of go. So it was a weird situation. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Just a lot of shit. Yeah, there's a lot, but Just it's like- a all, lot of shit. Yeah, like all of that contributes and like everybody's case of like disordered eating over time especially if they have all these other like comorbidities like this is why i'm so hell-bent on injecting nuance into every eating disorder conversation mm -hmm. um because like when i was trying to just like get it together after getting you know booted from treatment when i was 17 um you know then i ended up moving out of my family home like a year later i was like so broke um i was just going pretty much all day without eating and then just like binge eating at night and i kept that up for years um and then we mix in some other things like i'm getting anxious during the day because i'm not eating and then i'm like drinking and then i'm binge eating because that's just you know it, it gets so dysregulated wow. over time and because of how we portray all of these different disorders and because i already went to treatment and i wasn't like I didn't have the like financial capability to take care of myself. I didn't know how to be an adult, all of these things. Like, and because I thought binge eating disorder was just like of one particular way, right? Like these eating yeah. disorder stereotypes, like, you know, are really harmful. I never conceptualized my behavior as binge eating. I never thought like, oh, well maybe it's not like the best, healthiest relationship with food to eat all of your food at the end of the day after getting drunk, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So it, it's been really interesting. And when I, I already mentioned, like I learned kind of at a young age when I was in eating disorder treatment as a teenager, that a lot of the older women that we would have group with, the adolescents would have groups with the adults and we would be meeting with women who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s who started out having anorexia or bulimia and then just over time developed binge eating disorder and it was interesting to see that progression in my life and that is like a natural kind of progression for us at a physiological level and thinking about that kind of physiological experience taking out all of the mental stuff right and then thinking about that for populations like food insecure people is really interesting because so much of what we call disordered eating is so biologically driven from like our sense of survival and it was it's been interesting to kind of conceptualize my own experience through that lens and see all the like nuanced factors that contributed to that and how i learned to regard my own behavior and then how we look at maybe non-traditional eating disorder presentations or you know, then I think of like, okay, well, if we're treating somebody for binge eating disorder and we're not evaluating how they started, like, is this appropriate treatment? Are we making the problem worse by recommending essentially what people with restrictive eating disorders do when this is how that person started out? Like, what's what's the potential for harm in that situation? The thing is, like, it's it's not something that we think about. And I think you know, that's one of the really unfortunate aspects of us having all these stereotypes um, kind of guiding our perceptions of disordered eating and also like using 
you know, I have plenty of criticisms of the DSM, right? But when practitioners who see these things as discrete categories, or, you know, we're just trying to get our job done and be like, this is what I have to build for, this is the diagnostic code, like, et cetera, we get locked into these discrete categories because the DSM is a disease model and it's like for insurance. And we can kind of like just get really narrow, like in our perception like if someone's in front of us and they have binge eating disorder let's say like we have 12 weeks of treatment that we can offer them like we're going to try to do our best like with what we can but is that going to like how are we approaching that and like how are we kind of conceptualizing how their binge eating disorder started are we asking them questions are we competent enough to kind of assess whether or not this started out in a restrictive way or has it always been like a binge type disorder like what's going on here what is this what is this person's story because no one's story looks the same what how did this develop like what are these what are these underlying causes because you don't just slap a diagnosis on and then like plop someone into treatment and mm-hmm. it all just like yeah this exact treatment that we use for so many other people like works um and it needs to work for you it's okay but did these other people have the exact same story no no and then you're wondering why this treatment doesn't work because mm-hmm. you're not considering that maybe this person didn't always have eating a binge eating disorder they had anorexia or something like that and then mm-hmm. it evolved yeah and that's wow. the thing it's like binge eating disorder like it definitely can be the kind of stereotypical like i experienced trauma and i'm coping with food right And also it can be, I had a restrictive eating disorder and my body fought like hell to survive and started binging. And now I'm in this cycle. Um, Or as in like the case of my research population, it's like, there's so many things that factor into a binge restrict cycle for food insecure people, right? So it's like, there's so many possibilities and we really need to make space for all of that and not get too bogged down by categories or a kind of like recent history right i'm like if you have binge eating disorder but you were anorexic when you were 10 that's valuable information for me to know um Mm -hmm. because that could tell me a lot about how your behavior developed and it can also tell me a lot about how you know like potential like psychological processes like developed and exacerbated the underlying kind of physical processes if that makes sense it does make sense yeah yeah we've talked a lot like we've mentioned about how there are a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes about eating disorders in school they teach you about anorexia and they teach you Mm -hmm. about bulimia i never recall i i don't recall learning about binge eating disorder and so like i said before this is something new to me like i had only known about binge eating disorder in recent years maybe in the last like five or six or something like that Mm -hmm. and when i first learned about it i thought because the way that that information is presented i thought that binge eating disorder looked only like someone who was like really 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 overweight Mm -hmm. and would just eat like a whole tables full of food for binging Mm -hmm. And, like, that's how the information was presented and and still is really much. Like, when you're reading about it, it doesn't talk about how someone like me, for example, could display 
binge eating disorder behaviors. You know, like if someone looked at me, they would never be able to tell that I also engage in this type of behavior. Maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily like clinically significant, like you say. The point is like binge eating disorder, I have learned, does not look like the way it's presented in media where it's not just this like going to McDonald's or something and ordering like $60 worth of food and eating it in their car alone. Like that's not only what it looks like. That's not, mm-hmm. it it's looks just, like so many It's other just things. one presentation. Yeah. It's just one. And that's also like, yeah, what you were talking about as far as like your personal experience, like dealing with food insecurity and how it impacted your eating. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, um, and that happens on like individual levels for like a lot of food insecure people. Um, and it also happens in this kind of like top down way. It gets reinforced in a lot of ways by how people are allotted food stamp benefits. Like they get them every two weeks or once a month that day that you get those benefits people tend to buy a lot of food and binge and then toward like the end of the month when they're running out of money they start restricting that's like a potential big cause for how these things get like reinforced even when people are receiving help with improving their food security and then we run into the issue right of like you know i don't know if that experience like i know my experiences with food insecurity have impacted me in the long term right i have a lot of behaviors from being food insecure that i still deal with to this day primarily like food hoarding that's like a really common thing that people who have experienced food insecurity do but experiencing food insecurity at any point can alter your food and eating behaviors in the long term and so even if we are like addressing these things, it can be really difficult to get out of these cycles because like at the end of the day, we're little hairless apes on a space rock, right? And we're, <laughs> we're animals just like a squirrel getting ready for winter being like, oh, I got to keep that. I got to keep that. Yeah. I got to, I got to pack it on. Like I'm, you know, but there's so much about our culture that like tells us that what we're doing is like silly and bad and complicates things and then we have like a whole economic economic system to like reckon with and it just gets so complex right but at the end of the day it's like what you were doing is very is a very intuitive way to survive your body saying my needs are not being met feed me now like not being able to regularly eat because you can't afford that Mm -hmm. and then pretty much like it just gets to the point where you're like, I'm going to take what I can get and get as mm-hmm. much as I can. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be in my body right now. Mm-hmm. It all needs to be in my body right now. And then you, you know, I, I would find myself like, I'm not saying I don't have any body image issues. Um, like they later came into play, you know, like the, the food insecurity thing just became a huge factor where it's like, I need to take ex- like what I can get. And I can't save it for later like I cannot I would find myself not listening to my body when I was when it was saying like okay you're full now I would still have food and be like no I need to eat all of Uh this food because I don't know when I'm gonna eat next Uh and you know if I wait and save this food for later like what if it goes bad what if I can't eat it anymore like I I have Uh to eat all of it right now and then you just you get sick 
Yeah. And the cycle just continues. When you when you have body image issues on top of that, like there's this little voice in your head telling you like so many conflicting things, food insecurity on top of that with that little voice, that internalized shame, that internalized guilt going on. Trying to really paint a, a longer term picture um, so we can understand, right? It's like, how do all these things like intermix? Because it's it's so obvious when it's something you've experienced. I like binged as a kid. I was a fat kid. I got bullied. I stopped eating, right? Like I can look back at all of that and see how like these things have changed over time, but what research hasn't done so far is describe that experience and it's like what do we do about that because whatever we have right now isn't working and it's so hard when it's like you know you're just you're describing it's like yeah it, that shame narrative comes in and it's like debilitating when you're already like down for the count because you can't even mm -hmm. afford to eat anyway you know in your head you know that that things need to be better but the reality is different than the you know whatever your head is putting together like that needs to be done mm -hmm. you know like when i when i would binge at night in my head i would be like you know i know that this is not good and i know that i shouldn't have this internalized like shame about my body but the the little voice that i have in my head it's not my mm -hmm. own voice of anti-fatness it's someone else's mm -hmm. that has imposed this anti-fatness narrative mm -hmm. um, that that instills this feeling of shame, this feeling of guilt, and this feeling of fear in me that I've tried really hard and still am working on to minimize and just unpack. And so that's that's really hard. I don't know if it's harder if it's your own voice or if it's someone else's, but that's my experience anyway. I mean, do we even really have do we even really have our own voice? This is something that I get really philosophical about because, you know, I think especially coming from before I went back to school, before I went to therapy school, um, I worked with young children. Um, I was a teacher and a nanny and just realizing how like at the behest of the environment children are and how vulnerable we are to internalizing really harmful messages about ourselves. Or even if we think like about research that shows like kids can like basically like racially and like misogynistically discriminate against other kids at a very young age, it's like, whew. And so it's like one of those things, it's like, yes, I am my own person. I am a culmination of experiences that does not exist in any other body or mind, right? At the same time, it's like, those those like hateful ideologies whether that's anti-fatness like racism sexism etc those are not things that i value right but to some extent they are a part of me and those are things that i have to navigate in various ways right but it is really hard to decouple our values from the values that have been instilled in us by the larger culture and anti-fatness is such a pervasive kind of issue um, in our culture that it, it's so hard. It's like, I've been unpacking that for 
Lord knows how long at this point. And I still find like little things like, you know, I recently was like sick with gastritis, um, <laughs> ate a, ate a wonky Italian sub <laughs> and, uh, I know I, I was craving it so bad too. And I was so excited. And the next day I was like, oh, I am man. deeply ill. <laughs> um, right. and I was sick for like a month and I lost a bunch of weight. Right. And I still have that voice. Right. When I look in the mirror, I'm like, Ooh, I look good. And I'm like, why? 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 You're sick. Yeah. I'm like, I look unwell. Like I'm just starting to look well again. And I'm like, my pants don't fit. Now I'm like, man, I have to wear a belt and so I'm comfortable. But like, there's still that voice in my head that kind of knows how that I, I've been socialized that this gives me some kind of power. This gives me some kind of leverage over other people. This makes me desirable. Being smaller makes me better. It also, when we get into the interaction with our own kind of individual psychology and all of this stuff, right? Like the whole aspect of borderline. And I'm just like, this makes people worry about me like this oh yeah yeah this makes me justified in my illness there are a lot of ways in which my body and how i have interacted with my own body meets a lot of like unmet needs that showed up as you know personality disorder right mm. um and so there's this other kind of like aspect to it that i was just kind of talking about where it's like that is also the work that needs to be done to, if I truly want to unpack all of that, right? If I don't want to keep reaching for tools that rely on anti-fatness to get relational needs met or to feel like I have like a substitute that's a little bit easier um, to get needs met or to do, I don't know. I feel weird calling them like sneaky borderline things. That's like how I refer to it in my head where I'm just like, eh, it's, it's not the healthiest way to to have our needs met but it is convenient at times when i feel under resourced or under supported right so it's like how do we how do we shore up all of that so that like they're not like the the borderline isn't nudging the like internalized anti-fatness or like contributing to these like biopsychosocial processes it's really it's really interesting to kind of peel back layer after layer and be like oh that's complex <laughs> yeah it is like Peeling back layer after layer, that's a good way to imagine it. The, sh the Shrek way. Yeah. <laughs> the I just imagine that whole scene in Shrek. Shrek is part of my IFS system. <laughs> Sanding me <laughs> an onion. <laughs> anyway. I need to make this into a meme. Wow. Um, <laughs> IFS memes with Shrek. That's so funny. Holy shit. Yeah. It's also just one of those things of just like bpd babes just surviving out here <laughs> just like we have a disorder that's like die all the time and then it's like just just get another disorder that's really deadly on while you're at it you know but the thing is it's like it was trying to keep us safe the whole time it was trying to get needs met we outgrew the way that we needed to get those needs met and it became harmful yeah and we can learn to have new tools and learn how to use those new effective tools in our tool belt <laughs> and yeah a lot of my kind of unpacking this this guilty and shame and like self-punishing feeling these thoughts has been a lot of just self-forgiveness being like you know what it's it's okay you don't have to 
you know you don't have to look down on yourself and be like wow like why am i so dumb it's it's not that it's this is a common unfortunately thing that happens when we're trying to cope and we're trying to survive and we're just trying to get through it and it's not working anymore it worked and that's why i'm still here and i don't want to live like this you don't have to live like this it it takes time it's we're just working on new tools and it's okay whenever i think of like that judgmental voice that's like like why did you learn to cope this way it's so silly that like your boyfriend was short with you and now you're on the floor contemplating death Word. um i'm gonna i'm gonna move to a central american country and abandon everybody and make them really worried about me and i was like that's really silly Don't Ima- that. imaginative but also kind of silly <laughs> and so like having some kind of like reverence for those thoughts like just being like eh, i don't know <laughs> like that that was a funny funny situation I'm reminded of when I was a preschool teacher, right? And we would have kids anywhere from two and a half to four in our room, which really way too big of an age gap. They were fighting each other too much, but like we would do like an art project, right? And so the way kids perceive things is different, right? They don't understand like orientation, like left and right, like all of that stuff until like a certain age, right? They don't even understand that things are like permanent or like exist behind a wall until they're like 18 months, oh. right? Oh my God. Mind blown. <laughs> um, but like, I would be walking kids like through an art project and it wasn't like super complex from my standpoint or even from the four year old standpoint, but the two and a half year olds, man, they would get real creative with it. I'm like, okay, that cat's eyes are like kind of on its butt, but we're gonna roll with it. <laughs> but it's like, thinking okay. about that, it's like, that when I was learning how to survive and no one was teaching me how to regulate or how to feed myself or do X, Y, and Z, this is what my brain was doing. I thought cat, like I looked at a cat and said, the eyes go on the butt and that is right in my head. Like, because I literally don't understand the difference. And so just thinking of like how small we are when we develop these ways of coping with very difficult emotions that just, you know, I like to imagine that they just like kind of build up in the body, right? Um, Cause they kind of more or less do, but like, what was I supposed to do with any of that? Didn't have the tools. You didn't have someone to tell you that the cat's eyes don't go on the butt. Yeah. And we yeah. can translate in- that into your eating, your relationship with food. Like you didn't have mm-hmm. someone to tell you, hey, this is actually how often you need to eat. This is how mm-hmm. much you should probably eat this is what you should be eating this is how to make food Mm -hmm. um or like when you're a young age you shouldn't even be making food for yourself your your parents should be Mm -hmm. hey here's food ideally like food for you your your child andy has just developed this cryptid of eating habits and it walks that's fine a cryptid of eating habits that's that's my that's it that is the new way that I'm talking about these from now on. Cat's eyes go on the butt, it still walks and poops and sees, so why- what is the problem? <laughs> you guys are telling me that, 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 that this is not how it works? Well, why didn't you tell me this sooner? Like, now I've just- like, this cryptid has been, like, solidified in my- Yeah, well, people looked at that cryptid and said, yuck. People were like, ooh, messy, ooh, manipulative, ooh, dramatic, ooh. Like, why are the eyes on the butt? Doesn't it know that that's weird? 
No one told me that this is not how this works. <laughs> then why does it work? Yeah. Right? So then you have to rewire mm -hmm. everything. You have to basically take everything that you've taught yourself and you're like, oh, okay, everything I know is wrong. Is it wrong or is it ineffective? Or not helpful anymore? Like, man, that was a great strategy for a three-year-old. Really unfortunate as an adult. I can't throw things at people anymore. They don't like that. No. No. You know? Yeah, that, that's so called when you, abuse when, when you yeah. do it as an adult. Yeah. As a three-year-old, it's like, oh, sweetie, you need a nap. <laughs> as an adult, it's, ooh. And that's what took me back to therapy. I was like, ooh, too far. <laughs> ooh. I can over here in my little mind palace see all of the eugenics, ableism, like healthism, racism, misogyny, um, and classism that all kind of culminate in this like larger power structure and that gets distilled down into anti-fatness, right? I can see the really complex like web of things and then also think about how I know from like a mental health standpoint, like we will internalize these things, we will level these things at other people, um, the emotional component, the socialization, the psychological factors, like I can see all of that, right? And I don't think it's something that any of us will ever truly unpack, um, but it's so hard to get to a place of understanding with it in like a complete way for a lot of people because it's not necessarily accessible like it requires a lot of like understanding to be able to see all of those aspects right like i spent years just reading article after article book after book um like took a year and a half of medical history and i'm still just like man this is complex and i've noticed too like on social media like a lot of people are like you know people will be like it's chronically online to say like that anti-fatness is racist and i'm like that's not chronically online that's intersectional <laughs> yeah no like it, it it truly is and it's one of those things where it's like i do understand why people say that though because people who are saying things like anti-fatness is rooted in racism have a higher level understanding of it than the people who are like what are you talking about right you know and I think that's where we we kind of like lose a lot of people is like we get really in depth talking about like all of the social, economic and political things that underpin anti-fatness and appeal to a lot of values that people might differ on, right? Without giving people any like real tools to actually unpack them. What exactly does anti-fatness look like? Because again, there's not one way. There are a lot of like, I don't know, what's the word? Like covert forms of anti-fatness where it's not just like people bullying you blatantly for your weight i i i feel like there's a lot of like internalized anti-fatness um like you said that that people don't even realize is anti is anti-fatness there is really just so much that gets distilled down into it and um it's interesting also when we do talk about like intersections of like intersectional oppressions, kind of like being represented by our hatred of fat people, right? And I think about like 
discrimination in the workplace. Um, and there are only a couple states in which like you can like have legal recourse for losing your job for being fat um, or gaining weight. And what's interesting is that that firing people for being fat is usually actually firing people on the basis of other things like like not being white or being poor. And so there are these real world examples in which we can see anti-fatness functioning as a proxy for like other forms of discrimination, which one really obvious one is women. Women who are fatter are less valuable than women who are not, socially speaking, right? Like that's something we all kind of understand. Um, and we understand that men have more leeway in that department because if they're bigger, like, then they're big and strong and they can go chop down a tree for you, which hot, but not fair, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's not fair. Yeah, like we have so many, so many intersections with anti-fatness, right? And I think it, it's also interesting having been in like different body sizes over time and being treated differently um, in a lot of situations, thinking even about like, you know, intersections of anti-fatness and ableism, in, uh, anti-fatness and healthism, like things that I've noticed in my own life, um, like navigating chronic illness, like having my congenital heart disease blamed on my weight at like an adult hospital, stuff like that. Um, and how we will often like blame people's health on their fatness or we will blame their disability on their fatness, even though like more often than not, it's the illness or disability that either causes fatness or precedes it. We can see that too with like highly stigmatized diseases like diabetes. Um, diabetes usually causes weight gain, not the other way around. Um, and so our just reliance on fatness as this thing that we've been told is the cause of all of like our concerns as a society is just so inaccurate and i think because we have like relied on it for so long as this like moral panic it's so hard for us to even see it because we've more or less been instructed how to weaponize it it is seriously this phobia it is fat phobia i'm like having just a mind not a mind-blown moment, but I'm just like, oh my god, society. I, I invited you into my mind palace, and I'm sorry. It's very cluttered, and the stairs are crumbling in here. It's a lot of stuff on the walls. <laughs> Andy's mind palace. Um, that's fine. It's, it's important to be in this kind of mind palace to understand mm -hmm. just how interconnected anti-fatness is, and the media doesn't talk about this they just say like if you have an eating disorder that's a disease and you need help and here's what yeah. having an eating disorder looks like here's like pretty much the warning signs the the warning signs and symptoms. the only like, ones <laughs> the only ones it's just like okay <laughs> you don't know someone's life you can't look at someone and tell if they have an eating disorder or not you you can't this has been super insightful about all of the nuances of eating disorders, how it doesn't look like one thing in particular, and how anti-fatness and food insecurity ties into eating disorders. Like, I seriously, I actually learned, like, quite a bit from you in the last, like, 
little while. So I really appreciate it. Um, is there anywhere on the internet that you'd like people to find you if they want to? I'm on TikTok at Andy Lynn Evans. Um, I kind of bounce around with the subjects that I talk about, but I'm sure I'll be talking more about disordered eating as I am updating my literature review for my new study. Beyond that, you can find me, you can find my research linked in my TikTok bio. Um, but if you don't have TikTok, you don't want to look at it, um, you can find me on Medium at ED Food Justice. You can read my thesis there and Medium will read it to you. So that's exciting. But Ooh. I am nowhere else on social media, really, unless you're into tapestry. And then you can find me at Web Fibers on Instagram. <laughs> oh, I think I just followed your tapestry <laughs> Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm so here for it. Andy, thank you so much. What I love about Andy is the way they can bring some levity when presenting a topic like this. There's definitely a level of self-acceptance and compassion they have for themselves, and honestly, I am here for it. So here for it. Love it. In the next episode, you and I are going to chat with my friend Nick, who also lives with Quiet BPD. We'll talk casually about how Quiet BPD affects us, how we've learned to cope in healthier ways, and things we wish the world knew more about when it comes to Quiet BPD. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Quiet, not silent. We can create a perfect world in our heads.